Hey, everyone. It's Amber. In 2019, I began work on a podcast series that explored how historically marginalized groups were underrepresented in the IBD space. The plan was to record episodes during the spring conferences of 2020 with a goal of publishing in the fall of that same year. As you already know, those conferences didn't happen. I pivoted to recording remotely and finally published the seven-episode series in the spring of 2021. What you're about to hear next is an episode of that series, which is called Healthcare Disparities in IBD. I'm the host and producer, but it's a different animal from about IBD with a focused topic and some voices that haven't been heard on this feed before. Much has changed since the production of this series in 2021, but our discussions are still relevant in so many ways. While working on this show, I learned more things than I can list, and I hope you get a little something out of it too. Thanks for listening. Welcome to episode one of Healthcare Disparities in IBD. I'm your host, Amber Tresca. In this limited series, we'll explore how inequalities in the healthcare system affect people in minority groups who live with IBD. We unravel this topic starting at the beginning, why there's a lack of research and access to care for minority IBD patients. My guest is Dr. Aline Cherubati, who is the director of the IBD Center at Johns Hopkins Sibley Memorial Hospital. She is also the founder of Monday Night IBD on Twitter, where healthcare providers have a weekly discussion around the treatment and management of IBD. I met Dr. Cherubati at a congressional briefing where she presented on disparities in the treatment of IBD. Her experiences as a female gastroenterologist, an immigrant, and an IBD specialist give her unique insight into how people of color who live with IBD are affected by lack of access to care. Dr. Cherubati frames the scope of the problem with research and healthcare access within the minority IBD community. She also offers clear ideas on how to address the problems. From Washington, D.C., let's talk to the always perfectly quaffed Dr. Aileen Cherubati. Dr. Chirabadi, thank you so much for talking with me today about disparities in care in the IBD community. Hi, Amber. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be back. So I'm just going to dive right into this issue. And I want to start with research because there's some research that's already been done that shows that people who are part of an ethnic or a racial minority group in this country really face disparities in their care when it comes to Crohn's disease or, and ulcerative colitis. What are some of the things that we actually know right now about how some groups of people are not receiving the same care for their IBD as others do? Um, Amber, this is a great question. And I think um, the root of health disparity is actually there are multiple roots. One is that there is a decreased awareness of um, um, the fact that minorities, African-American, Hispanics, or new immigrants to this country are at risk of developing inflammatory bowel disease. So there, there's still, you know, the classic teaching is that IBD affect uh, Caucasians, uh, particularly Ashkenazi Jews. So there's a, a wrong perception that this disease does not affect other races or ethnicities or people from different uh, country of origin. And so there's this decreased awareness from the, on the physician and clinician side, but also in minority communities. Uh, this is not a disease that's been, if you want, typically seen. We're seeing now an increase in the incidence 
of IBD in African-American and Hispanics. There are many patient advocates uh, that have been around for a long time, familiar with the disease. In a community where these are a minority community, there have not been awareness of this particular disease. Uh, so uh, there might be a lack of recognizing some symptoms or seeking care. Um, there are also cultural barriers where um, some patients and some cultural groups might not be comfortable talking about their bowels and uh, their weight loss or the blood in their stool and might delay uh, seeking care. And uh, the other thing is that, unfortunately, there is also a distrust of the medical system uh, that exists in a lot of minorities because of prior, uh, you know, prior history where minorities were not protected in terms of clinical research or access, uh, appropriate access to care. So one is that a lack of knowledge that IBD can affect and is affecting more and more minorities from the physician community and from the patient community. Um, um, maybe a lot of culture barriers in terms of actually acknowledging the symptom and seeking care. But also we know already that in the general population, if you want for everyone with IBD, there's often a delay in diagnosis and delay in effective therapies. We already have that problem. And now you're adding the disadvantage of being a minority and often coming from a low socioeconomic uh, status. Uh, so you're having you're adding the disadvantage of a lack of knowledge, decreased access to care, living in poorer neighborhood where um, there might be not uh, where they might not be have access to uh, appropriate medical care, where there's no uh, you know GI specialist or there's no IBD specialist, you know living in an underserved area where there's no easy access to seeing somebody who can recognize the disease and start treating you. And a low socioeconomic status comes also with the fact that you don't have good insurance coverage. Uh, so there's a concern about, you know, going to the doctor, getting therapies that you cannot afford. There is concern if you're living from paycheck to paycheck that you're going to miss a day of work to go to see the doctor. So there's so many factors, uh, you know, whether it's uh, knowledge, whether it's access to care, socioeconomic status, cultural barriers, all these converge patient from underserved uh, population have decreased access to care, decreased recognition of their IBD and, and appropriate care of their IBD. I mean, it's very clear that there's an issue and it's multifactorial, obviously. But I feel like there's still a lot of unknowns and that we don't, we're not really necessarily getting to the heart of this. Is there a role for more research and what are the types of things that we could study to sort of begin to untangle this a little bit more? Absolutely. There are a lot of unknowns uh, on main, uh, for on many levels. One is, uh, like I said, we know that the incidence of IBD is increasing in African-American and actually at a rate higher than Caucasian. Uh, we know that immigrants uh, coming from country where there's a low incidence of IBD are catching up and their uh, risk of IBD is um, becoming the same. But there are several things that we don't know. Uh, one is uh, in terms of uh, manifestation. So the studies that we have in minorities, clinical manifestations uh, of IBD are, can be a little bit contradicting. There are a small amount of studies. And so we don't know yet for sure if the degree of severity, organ involvement and manifestation is the same as what we see in Caucasian. Because even if we see, uh, we often, there are some studies actually showing that there might be more perianal disease, more, uh, more hospitalization, more surgeries. We don't know if this is because of an increase in the severity of the disease 
or because there was a delay in presentation, coming and seeking care, a delay in diagnosis, or a, you know, delay in appropriate care and appropriate management uh, that leads to the fact that minority patients are presenting with complication, with, uh, uh, with a complication needing surgery, needing uh, to be hospitalized. So even we, we know a little bit about presentation, but we don't know what is the source of that. Is it different genetics? Is it different manifestation? Or is it mainly due to a delay in the care and maybe spotty care or more kind of urgent care pattern as opposed to a continuity of care? And then a big problem that we have with research just in general, and this goes further than IBD, but it does tend to be a big problem in the IBD community as well, is that minority groups are often left out of the research. So I'm wondering, though, how does the IBD community address this? And how might we get more minority groups involved in research? And who who do we look to to do this? Is it uh, pharma companies? Do we need providers like yourself? Or do we even need government to get involved in this? This is a great question, Amber, and you're absolutely correct. Most uh, clinical trials have uh, really a, a small percentage of patients from uh, minorities, uh, group, minority groups. And so it, it is hard to uh, draw a conclusion that the therapies that we have been using uh, would be as effective or would have the same similar safety profile, side effect profile in, in, in minority group. Um, uh, and Caucasian. I think there's different issue here. One is if you are a person of color or minority and you don't have access to care and access to an IBD center, uh, then their likelihood of you being considered for a clinical trial is really low. You didn't get to that point to, to be able to uh, reach the, the specialty people that could enroll you in clinical trial. So that's one thing. Second, there is a lack of knowledge of what a clinical trial is. And a, and a clinical trial carries a lot of negative connotation in uh, several cultural groups. I do remember that uh, I, I was discussing a new biologic with a patient of mine and uh, he was African-American and his mother was in the room. And this was a patient who had really difficult to treat Crohn's disease. And uh, his Crohn's was not responding to many of the treatment. And we had a new biologic available. And I was really excited to offer that biologic to the patient. And when I said, when, when I even just using the word new biologic, there was really a negative reaction where the mom was really concerned. And she said, you know, I'm not going to let you try a new drug on my son. And so we had this whole conversation then when it, a new drug is approved and on the market, it's because there were years of evaluation and years of assessment of efficacy and safety and the FDA reviewed the data and it's approved. Uh, so there's years of data behind that. So I think that really made me realize that uh, there is a negative connotation that comes with a trial. Uh, and also, like, you know, I touched upon this earlier, the, the, uh, historically, uh, minorities, uh, when we didn't have good safeguards, for clinical trials, um, minorities suffer consequences of that. So there is a deep distrust in what a clinical trial would be uh, and how the medical system work. And so I think there's a lot of education that is uh, needed. It needs to take place in terms of explaining what a clinical trial is, the safeguards, 
you know, when you look at the IRB and, uh, and clinical trial wording, there are like wording that, you know, using words that are familiar to the patient. I think there has to be also an extra effort that uh, we use uh, words that are in line, if you want, with some of the cultural and ethnic barrier of what a trial is. So we need to understand what these barriers are better and really make sure that when we explain what a clinical trial is, to a patient from a minority group that we explain it in language that resonate and make sense and answer the potential concern that they could have that maybe we, we didn't consider before. I think, um, you know, like you mentioned, I think we all have a responsibility on, on how we need to lead the way um, because this is really uh, an effort that has to be done at several levels in terms of physicians becoming comfortable discussing clinical trials with patients in terms of uh, pharma company making a, a conscious effort to enroll minorities and uh, different groups in their trials so that we can really say for sure this drug would work also for you, right? And I think there has to be a government approach where there's an education uh, on the wide, in the wide public, what a trial is, what are the safeguards we have, et cetera. And just to kind of circle back to the physician and to the medical community, we were talking, you and I, earlier about how representation matters. And if you have a doctor that does not look like you, that's telling you about a trial that had, was successful in people who don't look like you, and uh, you're offering this drug, it's, it's not going to be the same as opposed to having that kind of a, you know, almost instant trust when you're talking to somebody who's speaking the same language, who looks like you who tells you these drugs have been tested and, and deemed to be safe and effective in patients who are African-American or Hispanic or from other minorities. Uh, so the, it's really, uh, things have to be done at different levels and we have to be creative. Uh, you know, I was thinking about uh, Miguel Rigero IBD homes uh, and where the concept is that it's a kind of a one-stop shop, right? Where you get your GI consults, your colorectal surgeon consults, your psychologist and uh, your nutritionist, et cetera, everybody involved in the care is there. And when we're thinking about our patients who are at a disadvantage uh, socioeconomically and in terms of uh, really having uh, access to care and appropriate care, the concept of IBD home really uh, feel to me that this is good answer to this problem. Because when a patient cannot take time off to see five different physicians uh, and arrange for the logistic and for the daycare and for somebody covering for work and not missing time from work and uh, on, you know, trying to really uh, manage a complicated disease as it is, the IBD home concept, I think, will resonate very nicely with, with many patients that this is the one place we'll take care of everything, we'll discuss things, and where there's a frequent follow-up uh, until uh, there's more familiarity of the disease, of managing the disease, of what are the steps you need to take, how you learn to advocate for yourself. So all these steps take time, and we need to support our patients who are not familiar with these steps and, and give them uh, the right tools uh, to be able to understand the disease, manage the disease, be in control of the disease, advocate for themselves in a way that is compatible with the socioeconomic and cultural environment uh, our patients are in. 
You know, I'm so glad you brought up the the concept of the IBD home because I'm aware of it, not that I have been involved with it as a patient, but I'm just aware of it from seeing it being presented at different meetings and then talking with providers about it. But I didn't think about it in this way that you just described. It sounds very time intensive, but it also sounds wonderful. Is that something that's also being done in other disease states because it, it can't be like a new concept to do things this way. Yeah. So I, I, so it's a it's a concept that's really important in, in chronic uh, diseases. And it's been so for example cardiovascular disease, diabetes management, because it's been shown that by having this kind of a team approach and having that follow-up uh, that is uh, very close, you do prevent uh, you know, long-term complication from the disease by better controlling the disease and really providing the care that patients need. At a smaller scale, you know, I think, you know, the the fact that now we have telehealth is also fantastic. Uh, you know, if we want to think about one of the positive things that COVID-19 uh, pandemic precipitated was really uh, being able to use televisit. Uh, because again, uh, for many patients, I mean, all patients from all um, minorities and ethnicities, it, it, has, it has been a valuable tool for continuity of care. But also it has the advantage where you're not, you know, taking time off from work, traveling, driving for hours, uh, paying for parking, waiting in the waiting room, etc. So I feel that, you know, this is an, another tool that we can use to reach our patients who don't have access to care in their community and also to make it easier for them, right? So um, if you're you're on the job, you can take 15, 20 minutes to do your televisit, right? And and then get the care that you need and the advice that you need without having to miss work and having the anxiety uh, to have to choose between a paycheck and a a visit to your doctor and your health. Uh, So I think uh, televisit uh, is one of the tools we can use to extend our reach to patients who are an underserved uh, neighborhood who don't have access to a physician or an IBD specialist um, um, where there are distance to be traveled. And so we can absolutely use that to uh, to reach more of our patients. Yeah, I can't tell you how angry it makes me to have to pay for parking at the hospital. <laughs> I know I'm not alone in that. I mean, if, if malls and movie theater can give it for free, we should be able to give it for free, right? I agree with you. The first time I met you, which you might not remember, but it was in 2018 because you were giving a brief on the Hill in Washington, D.C., and it was to Congress and their staff members. I think it was mostly staff members that were in there, but it was on the disparities in treatment in IBD. And I'd love to know a little bit more about what that was like for you and if there was any kind of a follow-up after that, uh, particularly if it helped maybe some of the staff members uh, speak to their bosses in Congress about, about disparities and about how we can learn to better understand them and manage them with government getting involved. I'm going to tell you, this meeting was very impactful for me um, because, you know, you can look at data, you can look, read studies and see that, you know, minorities have less access to care. They're, 
our IBD patients uh, who are African-American are at high risk of hospitalization and dying during that hospital stay from their IBD. And it's numbers and you get angry and you feel we need to do something about it. You know, the way this meeting was organized, uh, your, your friend Brooke was there and she shared her story. And I think seeing the whole story from A to Z, as opposed to when I see my patients in clinic, they either have a diagnosis and they sent to me for a second opinion, or they came to me for symptoms, I made the diagnosis. I sometimes miss the whole story. And hearing her story really resonated with me and all the steps where things go wrong. For patients with IBD and in particular for patients who are uh, part of a minority group. And that really changed my perspective and changed my approach and changed what I teach others uh, on how to do things. Um, Brooke said how people didn't think she could have IBD, so she was not evaluated, how her symptoms were minimized, how when she had pain, um, you know, people didn't believe her or thought she was drug seeking. And it really kind of highlighted uh, not only the lack of knowledge that sometimes uh, as a, a physician community we might have that, you know, African-American and other minority can have IBD and, and serious IBD, but also the, the, the unconscious or conscious bias that physicians have for minorities that um, she, this is an African-American woman and they kept telling her it's stress, it's drug seeking, et cetera, and she lost her colon. So she had serious disease with serious manifestation. And uh, it really highlighted to me how as a physician community, as clinician, physician, uh, nurses, staff, everybody working in a medical team, we really need to work on our unconscious bias. I think even for people who feel they're not racist, they love everybody and everybody is, is, is welcome. There are some reflexes, there are some bias that we need to work on. And I think, uh, you know, this has to be done at the individual level, but also at institution level, at a practice level. Uh, so that was really something that um, that struck me uh, that day. And, um, you know, she expressed things with a lot of emotion and, and, and talked about how the disease affected her family. And that also changed how I approached things in terms of asking different questions uh, to patient uh, and, and really understanding their barriers to care. Because the patient might not tell you, I don't have the means to pay for the drug, or might not ask you, how much is this drug going to cost me? And if it's not fully covered by the insurance, what do I have to pay? There's there's pride and there's, you know, uh, there's a lot of things that, you know, uh, that every, we all have as human beings and patient might not tell you about this. There might be a whole family behind the patient that uh, is resistant to medical therapy and maybe promoting, you know, alternative therapy and herbal and all kind of things. And then you don't know that. You don't know that the patient is under the pressure of a whole family member saying, don't take that medication. Um, we're going to treat you with, you know, things that are more, you know, in line with, um, you know, more maybe complementary medicine or uh, non-traditional medicine, if you want. So, it really kind of clicked in my mind that I need to ask not about only about how my patient is doing, what's going on, how this disease is affecting you, but about specific barriers to care for a specific population, a specific minority and cultural groups uh, so that I can, un that can answer the question uh, that my patient is, not, is afraid to ask or not asking and that can appease their concern and the concern of their families. 
And uh, and then I realized how important sometimes it is to include the families in in the conversation about therapy and natural history of the disease, et cetera, so that everybody's on the same page and my patient get the support that they need internally, as opposed to having not only to fight the disease, but also to fight the preconception or misconception that their family member must might, might have. So that was how it impacted me on a personal level, uh, how I see things and how I feel these are part of the solution if you want to truly uh, fight health disparity and understand what our patients are going through. In terms of uh, my trip on the Hill, and this was a very impactful session for everyone, but I think nothing happened once, right? Nothing happened if you only meet a person once, okay? Even if it's a <laughs> love at first sight, there has to be a follow-up, right? So otherwise it's not going to go anywhere. And so after this, it really gave me the incentive to participate in the AGA Advocacy Day on the Hill. And uh, I've done this in subsequent years, which allowed me to create a more continuous relationship with the staffers. So often the staffers are there for several years and rediscussing this and amplifying and pushing, that is what is needed, right? This is part of, I guess, lobbying for, um, for a better world that you need to um, uh, develop these long-term relationship and follow up with an email and come back next year and talk more about it. Uh, so that we are showing that this is important, something has to be done, it's still a problem, and that we have a wider audience, somebody who can hear us. And I can tell you that most, you know, more recently, uh, the AGA actually, so I've been working closely with the AGA and I was with them at, at the Hill with the Grunzen Colitis Foundation too. We are going to start uh, fundraising for research grants specifically to study health disparity and uh, ways to overcome barrier. And again, with the goal of having, you know, <laughs> a, a just world, at least in GI, uh, until we can have a just a fair world everywhere. And so that our patients with uh, GI illness and, and including IBD can have access, easy access to care and effective care and high quality care. And they can expect to get the same uh, care than every uh, that everybody else. Uh, so I think that this the, this uh, session at the hair really changed a lot of things in me uh, in, in the way I practice, but also in my incentive to continue to advocate for my patient and in particular uh, um, a minority patient um, because um, uh, you know when there's a need there's there need to be more voices and more work and more continuous work and at different level, the advocacy, the research grant, what you're doing today, uh, the podcasting, you know, tweeting and events. It's just, it's, it's, it's a long march. I agree. And it's been so gratifying to see so many providers personally getting involved in this work and then seeing, you know, as you said, uh, the AGA, the American Gastroenterological Association, get involved in this work. And my own experience on the Hill has been the same as you described. Going several times a year uh, <laughs> for, for many years has paid off. Things are finally starting to get moving, I feel like, um, particularly in the IBD space. So it, it is, um, there's a long tail to this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it, is, it is a lot of work. You're doing things personally. You've been getting involved with institutions to do things. Are there other sort of, sort of large scale solutions that you think might need to be implemented in order to 
flatten this out and make sure that everybody has access to the care that they deserve? You know, um, I, I am I am an immigrant. I came to this country with great expectations, actually. And I think all immigrants coming to this country have great expectations. This is a country of opportunities and change, and it inspires people all around the world. And I came because I felt this is where I could get the best medical education and um, felt that I could be part of this country because I always saw you know, a diverse population in all these movies that are watching, <laughs> all the American movies. And so it was an interesting learning uh, experience for me to realize that not everybody is equal and that the richest country in the world has some of the poorest people in the world and that access to care is not universal, that we're still arguing whether it's a right or a privilege. So it was a little bit I don't want to say disheartening, but it was surprising. And and at the same time, I was a little bit confused because I have to say that as an immigrant, I had some disadvantages, but also I was welcomed by so many people who mentored me and sponsored me and pushed me to do better and connected me into um, different things um, at work and beyond. So it's it's a open arm country, and but 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 still there are arms that need to be open better. And when I went on the hill, uh, you know, I actually, as I was driving, I said, this is unbelievable. You know, I, again, I'm an immigrant. Uh, I come from a Middle Eastern country and I'm going to the United States uh, hill and to speak with United States representative advocating for African-American and Hispanic and other minorities. I mean, this is unbelievable. So I think that really struck me that we can all do something and we need to keep pushing that. Yes, there are problems, but there are solutions. And this is a country that allows you these opportunities that, again, I never thought when I landed here doing my residency that I'll be doing this. So I think there are a lot of things to do. I think it's important that we think small and big. We can all make a difference as a GI community we really need to increase the education for our patients and for our colleagues about health disparity, unconscious bias, GI illnesses, IBD. It's important to educate our patient for a minority that having IBD is not, if it's, you know, something that they can't do anything about it. It's not, not have a fatalistic uh, attitude that it's okay to talk about your bowel movement, that we are here to help you. It's important for us as a GI community to increase diversity in our medical field, have people from all ethnicity and minorities represented um, so that patient and physician can connect and also that physician from minority can bring the perspective of their community and culture that, you know, we can only grasp um, bits of it. At an institution level, it's important to tackle unconscious bias, do training, assess our role as big institution toward our community. Yes, it's okay to take care of all these patients with insurance, but we have a moral obligation to reach out to underserved community in our neighborhood. And whether it's uh, educational outreach, we have a moral obligation to do more than just care for the patient that can afford the care. And as, as a country, we have to move to a place where we accept that there is disparity, that it's, you know, we can't deny it that we accept this is happening and we decide to change that, that this is not acceptable. 
that this is not what this country is based about. This is really, it's important to be sure that health is provided to everyone, you know, regardless of sex, sex uh, age, gender, race, background, because everybody's working at this country to be a better country. So, um, so I think, uh, you know, I don't know if I answered your question. I don't remember what your question is anymore. Oh my God. I mean, you're not going to have me anymore on your, on your show. But, but, but I think the idea is that it has to be at different levels that, you know, if somebody from the government said, you know what, everybody should be treated the same, nothing's going to happen. And if you and I are the only one doing this, it's not going to happen. But I think it's important that as individual, as group, as organization, as societies, as advocates, as government, everybody is playing a role at a different level because these disparities have been going on for a very long time. So it takes time uh, to, to, to get to a place where things are better and fair. But I am confident that it will happen because, like you said, there have been such uh, effort from different uh, people, different community, different societies to shed light on disparities in, in many ways, and including in terms of healthcare and health access. Your answer uh, sort of doesn't surprise me. And this is because <laughs> having known you for the past few years and then also watching your work on Twitter, where you developed Monday Night IBD, which is now a venue for continuing medical education for providers. And this is super impactful. I feel like you're the first person to do this. Is that right? I, I believe so. And definitely in the, uh, well, I think we're the first to provide CME uh, in, on a Twitter conversation. But I think the concept was uh, a first. I, I think definitely in GI and, and I think in, in for other specialty, the concept of bringing together um, different uh, gastroenterologists, uh, and whether, you know, general GI or expert in IBD, but also other clinician surgeons and clinician that unfortunately sometimes we don't think about as part of the IBD care and they should be part of the IBD care, like nutritionists and psychologists and pelvic floor therapists and rheumatologists and, and dermatologists and infectious disease and liver specialists. So, you know, you and I know each other now for a while and you know that I always feel that the a diverse and inclusive way of um, looking at a problem and at a patient. Um, this is uh, this is where we can reach the best solution. So I'm very proud of it. It's my little like Twitter baby, and I think I'm mostly proud of it because it's like a surprise baby. You know, <laughs> it, it's not something that I anticipated. It's not something I had planned. When I got on Twitter, I got on Twitter to educate, and then I I found a community of physician, but also of patient advocate that educated me and I learned so much. And I saw a need to get everybody together and using a platform that doesn't need you to be physically or temporarily, you know, in, in, in a time and space, predetermined time and space. And it started like this to have this conversation between physician to tackle real cases because like we, we talked about clinical trials and clinical trials test drugs and studies look at certain things, but in our clinical practice, there's so many unanswered questions uh, that relies on the interpretation of different studies and expertise and experience. And it was very important for me to create that conversation and to show that maybe there are different ways of doing one thing, as long as you can justify it with the logic and data. 
but also to share data and science because we're not all reading 50 journals a day and we're not all part of the same research lab. And so I, I was really excited about this. And then, you know, I always felt the patient voice should be there and I wasn't sure how to include it. And I think by, by creating a specific day for patients, my goal was to really give the patient voice so that it doesn't get mixed among the clinician voice. And, but to be on the same platform so that physician can see the patient experience, how they're seeing things, how they're experiencing things, because I think we all learn from that. I learned definitely from that. And I think, and, and I wanted the patient to see what we're talking about and, and learn from that and, 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 and maybe bring it back to their doctors, have maybe, maybe that can change their care and say, you know, I saw this and what about this for me, you know. Maybe I need a pelvic floor therapist and nobody had ever suggested it before. You know, we often have conferences for physician and conference for patients and we don't have something really in between. And, and this was a perfect medium to really listen to each other and, uh, and learn from each other. And I think that's practice changing, but also it generate ideas for research, for papers, for, you know, how we can do things better for clinicians and for researchers in IBD seeing, you know, these conversations. So it's been quite a, an adventure. I'm, I mean, I'm smiling now. You can't see me, but I'm very <laughs> proud of my third child. <laughs> and honestly, the, the thing that I'm mostly proud of is the connection that people are making and that I made. I'm all about that. And, um, I'm, you know, call me a romantic or I don't know what the word is for that, but I think connections are important. And I, I feel that people get more empowered with these connections. People know who to call, who to reach out to if they need something. And uh, I feel we created a, a, a healthy community where uh, even if people disagree, they do it in a respectful way. Um, but also knowing that we're all working for the same uh, goal, which is improving the care of uh, IBD patients. It's been lovely to watch it blossom and to see where it's going. I think it truly is a revolutionary way to use the platform. I'm so glad I know you. Thank you so much for talking with me. The IBD community and the patient community really does appreciate everything that you do. Thank you so much, Amber. You, you, first of all, um, it's, it's always a privilege to uh, be part of your podcast. And um, I love watching your work. And you were one of the uh, IBD advocates that inspired me to, uh, to do more work on Twitter you really open a world of advocacy to me, you and a and, and few others. So I really commend you uh, for the work you're doing, uh, managing a, a, a difficult and stubborn disease sometimes. And at the same time, finding, um, you know, the generosity in your heart to improve others' lives, uh, other patients, and educate physicians about what patients need and want and what they're looking for. I'm really excited that you... Um, included me in this uh, podcast about diversity and, and inclusion. I think it's absolutely the way to go. And it's absolutely uh, um, important conversation to have nowadays, uh, even more than ever. I want to thank you. I think uh, we talked about this before that you, you said nice things about my hair also. So, and that is very important for me. <laughs> After I shared with you that it took me a long time to accept my hair. And, uh, and, and not only accept it, I love it. Um, so I appreciate that, but I really appreciate your kind word and your feedback because um, I think um, 
sometimes it's difficult to know what's happening on the other side. You, we get excited about a project, but it's it's such a positive feedback, and I really appreciate that. It really uh, touched my heart, and you know that. And um, it just gives me more um, incentive and energy to keep partnering with patients and clinicians um, in different ways. We have to kind of think creatively, like you're doing, like you've been doing before all of us start doing any, anything like that. Um, and I, that's why I have faith that we're going to be able to treat IBD better and, and maybe hopefully find a cure soon for everyone, regardless of race and ethnicity and, and cultural background. Addressing the disparities that Dr. Cherubati outlined is going to take commitment from providers, researchers, industry, advocacy groups, and legislators. Not only do the systemic problems need to be addressed, but individuals also need to recognize and apply themselves to dealing with their own conscious and unconscious biases. You can follow Dr. Cherubati and Monday Night IBD on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I will put all the links in the show notes. Thanks for listening. I'm Amber Tresca, reminding you that healthcare is a human right. Healthcare Disparities in IBD is a production of Malintel Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by me, Amber Tresca. Theme music, mix, and sound design is by Cooney Studio.